This is an AMI podcast. Keep the conversation going off the air. Your voice matters. Email feedback at AMI.ca or connect with us on Twitter at AMI-audio and let us know what you think about our programming. I'm Chuita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. Cure. It's a loaded word. It tends to elicit a range of emotions, fear, hope, shock, excitement. It can generate controversy. Finding a cure for a child's disability might be a no-brainer for parents who want what's best for their child. For many people with disabilities, finding a cure might suggest that they are broken and that disabled lives aren't worth living. Big Pharma, scientists, government, and other actors may have varying motivations in finding a cure, everything from saving a life to reducing costs for the healthcare system or profiting from a groundbreaking drug or therapy. Over and above all this confusion, questions about ethics and morality loom large. Today, we discuss curing disabilities. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Chuita Gupta and I'm the host of the program. It's great to be with you today. And of course, as I do off the top of every program, I hope that you're keeping well and staying safe during the pandemic. I want to remind you that if you've missed any of our coverage on AMI-audio relating to COVID-19, you can go back and get caught up on it by visiting ami.ca forward slash COVID-19. We keep track of all of the segments on our daily live shows that deal with the pandemic so that you are always keeping abreast of the news. My guest today is Keith MacArthur. Keith is the CEO of the Cure Grin Foundation and the host of the CBC podcast, Unlocking Bryson's Brain. Keith MacArthur, it is so nice to have you on the program. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. We're going to talk about some big, troublesome questions about curing disabilities. Mm -hmm. But before we get into all of that, let's get to know your son, Bryson. Tell us a little bit about him. Word on the street is he's a huge Blue Jays fan. He is a big Blue Jays fan. So um, we're happy that uh, at least for now, the season has restarted. He's been watching games with me on TV. Bryson is almost 14. And when he was a few weeks old, uh, we noticed that he wasn't developing as our first son had. So he was having much more trouble holding up his head. He wasn't tracking objects properly. And when he was about um, three months old, doctors confirmed you know, our fears that yes, he wasn't developing typically. And that sort of began a 10 year odyssey for us of trying to get a diagnosis for Bryson. So over time, he got diagnosed with sort of global developmental delay, he wasn't, you know, able to, at first, he wasn't able to sit up, um, finally, sat up around four months, wasn't able to walk, wasn't able to talk. Um, you know, it became clear over time that he had profound intellectual disability. And it wasn't until he was almost 10 years old that we got a diagnosis that Bryson had a genetic condition, a variant in his GRIN1 gene, which is one of the genes that uh, forms part of, of a condition known as GRIN disorder. And um, so since then, we've sort of been 
trying to understand more about the disease and more and more looking at, at how we can help Bryson. Mm-hmm. I'm going to return to your family's journey with just getting a diagnosis in a few minutes, but just bear in mind, most of us aren't science people. So mm-hmm. without getting into too much jargon, can you explain to us what GRIN1 disorder is? What happens to your genes when someone has this disorder? Yeah. So, I mean, in a basic sense, we all have about uh, 6.4 billion um, co- letters in our in our DNA, and with Bryson, he has one of those single letters that is different from what a typical D- DNA sequence would have, and it's in this part of his DNA that has a profound impact on his brain. And so, essentially, um, that one one letter change means that there's a a protein in his in his cells that gets changed, and as a result, he has um, much more difficulty learning and forming memories. Um, and and you know, it has other things like even vision. Although his eyes work perfectly, um, his brain is not able to to process the vision um, the way a typical brain would, and so he has you know um, cortical visual impairment. So there's a number of symptoms that um, come along with it. One of the really common ones is epilepsy as well. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, in your podcast, you describe it as a spelling mistake, uh, which took place at, at time of conception, and then it just kept multiplying. Um, one of the things that you struggled with were the the epileptic seizures that came along with it. It was something that as parents caused you and your wife, Laura, a great deal of concern. Tell us more about that. Yeah. And the truth is, we still don't really know if they are epileptic seizures or if they're something else. So mm-hmm. um, initially, we saw a neurologist who thought that they weren't seizures. We saw another one who thought that they were. More recently, we were just referred to another specialist who thinks that Bryson sometimes has seizures, but also has these other kinds of of episodes. But yeah, they can be really scary. So it's not what what you'd think of as a typical um, grand mal seizure. Um, But instead, Bryson kind of tenses up and um, he can get very... uh, angry. It's clear that he's kind of not able to control himself and he'll bite himself or try to mm-hmm. you know, bite those around him. Um, we know that something is going on in his brain because his, his pupils get really large during this and then they, right. they start and they stop abruptly, but we haven't been able to figure out what it is yet. So yeah, that that's definitely the most challenging part of this disorder um, for him, but also, you know, for us. So there's been times where he was um, trying to go to a physical therapy program and we were told that um, because of those episodes, it was just too difficult for them to manage. And and so he wasn't able to go unless we were able to provide a full-time caregiver. Mm -hmm. So um, he was going to this other school uh, for for physiotherapy three days a week and and had to return to go to a, a typical school um, every day. So yeah, so that's been a real challenge in terms of his development, and um, it's it's been improving over time. But there's still um, some days that are just um, exhausting for him. Yeah, and of course for both of you as well, for you and for Bryson's mom. One of the things you said in your podcast, I was listening and I said, oh, you know, I have to really ask him about this. Is how different the experience of parenting was for you as the dad, uh, the person who's supposed to be quote unquote the fixer, versus Bryson's mom, Laura, has a very different relationship as a parent. What were some of the differences? Not that you want to buy into gender roles, but still, <laughs> right. we're going to buy into the gender roles. Yeah, and and I would say especially at the start, those were particularly pronounced because, um, I was, I was back at work 
Um, I actually took took a couple months off with each of the kids when they were born, but Bryson was our, our second um, and, and last child. And so I went back to work when he was, uh, you know, around the time he was getting this diagnosis and Laura was home with, with him and a, another toddler. And, you know, so she was, I, I could kind of go to work and put it out of my mind. She was with it all of the time. And so, you know, I think that um, in my mind, I was much more optimistic. I think I was thinking that that this would be, you know, quote unquote fixed soon that he would quote unquote go back to normal um, where I think Laura realized early on that Bryson, um, you know, was going to have these major challenges. And so I think, I think because of the differences in how we viewed it, um, she felt alone a lot of the time in her, um, you know, kind of in her mourning. And, and I probably didn't get to that period of mourning for the child that we thought we were going to have until Mm -hmm. later on. The other difference, of course, is, and you you note this, is that, you know, for you as a dad, once you had a diagnosis, you could start to think about treatments and cures and where do we go from here? And Laura just wanted to make sure it wasn't degenerative and uh, really had a different sort of emotional reaction. Ten years to figure out a diagnosis. A lot of people must struggle with this, not knowing what's wrong. You can see that there are symptoms, but there's no discernible reason why. Why is a diagnosis so important? Well, for us, I mean, there, there were a few different things. So, so one of them, you know, you already mentioned is that it, for many, for many families that can give suggestions of treatments or the kinds of, of drugs that might help with things like seizures or, or other symptoms. Um, but there's two other things as well. So one is that for Laura, um, she always had the sense of guilt that maybe she had done something during mm-hmm. pregnancy that had caused this problem. And I think getting the diagnosis for her was sort of able to let go of that and just understand that this was just a spontaneous variant, the spontaneous mutation that had happened uh, at conception. And then the third reason is that it put us in touch with a community. And so, mm-hmm. you know, when Bryson got his diagnosis, there were seven other families that we could find in the world that had this diagnosis. Now we're connected with, with hundreds of people all over the world that have been diagnosed since then. And, you know, that, that is, that is huge to be able to talk to other families, especially for a a disease that's so rare and that's only starting to be a diagnosed where doctors just don't have much information. So a lot of the time parents can share much better information on what to expect, what, might work to help our kids than doctors can. And that leads me to the role of the patient family or the parent advocate. You say you spent a lot of time in doctors' offices. Uh, Bryson especially spent a lot more time than you did. Uh, What's the role of a parent advocate? Yeah, so I think that probably changes over time. Um, You know, certainly just, just in terms of you know, I think we, we recognize that we have some privilege. So we're, you know, an, an affluent family. It's speak fairly affluent. We, um, fairly educated. We speak English easily. And, you know, so, so we know that we have a privilege to kind of push in a way that some other families can't, but, but certainly, you know, that kind of advocacy is, is so critical. There's, there's one example that I talk about in the podcast where, you know, we sent off a test, um, or a, a test got sent off for, for a disease. Um, and we were told we'd hear back in a couple of months. And, um, you know, the, the, basically the office at the hospital told us, the nurse there said, you know, don't worry about it. We'll let you know when it's in. It's not in yet. And Laura kept advocating and kept following up. And eventually she, um, 
she learned that the test had never actually been sent off. Um, oh so this was a, this was really, really a challenge, but that, you know, that's an example of, of where advocacy really can make a difference in, in the quality of care. Um, and, and I talk about our, our privilege just because, you know, it's, it's a problem, I think, in the medical system that there are certain families that, that have the ability to um, advocate more easily than others. And one facet of your advocacy is seeking a cure for Bryson. And on the other side of the break, we'll talk about that cure. But just before we go, Keith, it's so clear to anyone who listens to you talk about your son or listens to your podcast that you love Bryson and you love him the way that he is. You also provide a lot of rationale and a lot of thoughtfulness has gone into seeking a cure for Bryson. What were you thinking? Well, I think, you know, initially when I started looking into this, it wasn't even something where I even had any idea that the the concept of cure would be con controversial. I just thought, you know, that it was my job to do everything that I could to help my son. And, you know, I, I thought that, um, that that would include this idea of, of cure, this idea of trying to help make him, you know, neuro neurotypical. Um, mm -hmm. And it's something that I've, I've struggled with a lot since I started learning more and more about it and talking to disabled adults um, for the podcast. Um, but, you know, I, I come out of it at the same place and, and look forward to talking more about that. My name is Joetha Gupta and my guest today is Keith MacArthur, CEO of the Cure Grin Foundation and host of the CBC podcast, Unlocking Bryson's Brain. Keith, let's just um, cut to the chase, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, your podcast has been getting a lot of attention. It's good, bad. And one of the reviews that you got from someone with a lifelong disability uh, went something along the lines of your family's obsession with finding a cure is ableist. And when you read that review, I know you're, you know, th there's an impulse to be defensive, but you sort of tamp down that impulse and you think through the implications of that statement. Give us a sense of what you were thinking. Is it in fact able to find a cure for disability? So it's it's a huge question and not one that's easy to answer with a yes or no. I think I think part of the problem sometimes is is even just the word cure because it means different things for different people. And so mm -hmm. I can definitely and in, in fact, you know, we spent a whole episode of the podcast uh, dealing with this and, and talking with um, an ethicist and um, another uh, disabled activist, two people living with disabilities. Um, and I've, I've talked to other people about it as well. So I think sometimes it's, it's that idea of cure that means different things to different people. Um, mm. so it's something that, that I've thought about and, you know, the, the truth is that even though I understand all of the challenges, if there were something that some kind of treatment that I could give to Bryson and it would make him neurotypical and he would be, um, able to, to walk and to talk and to, you know, have a, a, a more tip neurotypical life. Um, mm. I would want that for him, but the most important things are really, um, that I want him to be able to, to have agency over his own life. So the two things that I think are, are really, really important is, you know, for him to be able to communicate. So right now, he's not even really able to reliably say yes or no um, mm -hmm. or to tell us when he's in pain and, and just being able to say uh, to answer yes or no, to, to understand some basic questions, to say yes or no, to tell us what he's thinking or what he's feeling um, that would go 
such a long way to give him some some freedom. Um, the other thing is that, you know, I don't feel like um, I, I need Bryson to walk, but I mm-hmm. wish that Bryson had, you know, were able to move his own wheelchair around, that he were able to get around on his own. Right now, he doesn't have that that freedom. So, you know, are, are those cures? I, I don't know. They're, um, you know, they're, they're certainly things that would make his life a lot easier. And mm-hmm. so, you know, when, when we, we call our foundation um, Cure Grin, where we're, you know, working with, with families to try to um, to try to help kids and, and educate parents and, and advocate. Mm-hmm. Um, but really we talk about finding cures or, or therapies that can help them. And, and I think, you know, we're, we're about to undergo a process where we're going to speak with all of the families with hundreds of families around the world and, and get their thoughts on what it actually means. Like what are the most important things to help kids? And I think for some parents, they're going to say that it's, um, you know, medicines that will make these, these seizures go away. I think for some, um, it'll be something that will help their kids to be able to see better. Um, Mm -hmm. For some, it may be around um, being able to speak. And for others, it may be around Mm -hmm. mobility issues. So that's going to really help inform um, where we want to prioritize going forward. Mm. And, you know, the other piece around a lot of this is if your son is in a wheelchair um, and there's this whole notion of the social model of disability where a lot of barriers, the disability is a function of barriers that society puts in place. So does some of your energy also go towards removing some of those barriers and changing some of the attitudes, some of the anecdotes in your podcast about the treatment that your family and Bryson get at, at places like movie theaters and restaurants? It's really hard. It's heartbreaking. So how much of your time and resources do you spend in removing some of those societal and physical barriers. Yeah, and that that's something that you know I think was one of the main takeaways for me in reading that review was you know if it is really true that I I have that I'm obsessed with with cure or um then it's important for me to spend um as much time trying to fix the world, fix the system um as I spend time trying to quote unquote fix Bryson. So, um you know, so so that is something um, that I'm that I'm trying to do. So I've, I've joined a group that is advocating for changes to um, to, to washrooms, for example, in public mm-hmm. places. And I, I'm just taking it upon myself to try to learn um, more and more about you know with about adults with with disabilities, um, or, or and hear from from adults with disabilities. So I think you know e- even that is important. I think one of the big problems that so many foundations of parents of, of kids with rare diseases have is that we we kind of speak among ourselves and i think it's led to sort of a tension um mm-hmm. you know be- sometimes between these advocacy groups and and um people with with disabilities and and so i think we have a lot to learn um, from them, especially because our kids are going to, uh, you know, be adults with disabilities in, in not too long. So, um, so I think we have an important job to do to try and, and, um, bridge those, uh, those gaps between, between us and them. You took the words from my mouth. You know, speaking of ethics, there's, of course, a number of gene therapies that you talk about in the podcast and lots of promise there for someone like Bryson. Uh, the the CRISPR gene therapy is something that I've actually encountered because I think there's some potential there to cure various visual impairments as well. Of course, there are some ethical concerns. As a dad of someone with a rare genetic disorder, how do you grapple with some of those concerns? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there have there sort of have been um, a few different different ways that you can look at it. And I think when we talk about CRISPR, I think the, the important thing is that it's you know not it's something that that would typically be used to correct the DNA in an individual. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't affect um, it wouldn't affect children of that person. So it's not something that's actually changing the future of humanity or, you know, eradicating diseases or eradicating people with diseases or disabilities. It's something that um, would help one person. I think it becomes much more controversial if you ever talk about editing gene line, the reproductive Mm -hmm. uh, line, because then you're actually altering the the future of humanity. So, you know, I think, I think that's sort of, to me, the main ethical issue. I think the other is just around safety because there have been Mm -hmm. cases with genetics in the past where, people have died. Um, so obviously, you know, if, if we were ever going to consider something like that with Bryson, we would really want to know that, that it was safe and proven, um, because we don't, don't want him to be a guinea pig. Of course. And which parent would, right? Um, you said something very interesting that I would like to follow up on, which is this notion of building bridges with adults with disabilities. Um, how do you advocate in a way that incorporates the voice of adults with disabilities in practice? What would that actually look like and sound like to be at the same table, uh, with adults with disabilities? Yeah, I don't know. You know, that, that's something that I'm trying to think of myself right <laughs> now. So, you know, I mean, an example of something that I've thought about is, you know, we have all these conferences with, um, with families of, of disabilities. Um, but so, so how, you know, what would it look like to have adults with disabilities, even if it's not cure grin, but something else um, coming and talking to us about you know, having them as speakers at our conferences um, to kind of hear that, that perspective. So, so honestly, I, I'm I'm learning, and and that's an area where I'm I'm trying to figure out how to do that. I, I know it's important, but uh, still trying to figure out how to do it. And one of the things that I've noticed, just you know, as a person with a disability, is that there's often a lot more attention paid to endeavors to find a cure versus um, endeavors to enforce what we already have on paper, even things like anti-discrimination legislation or accessibility legislation. I mean, it's on the books, but enforcement is shoddy. So how do we get the public to buy into this idea that rather than seeking a cure, um, maybe equal attention or maybe more attention needs to be paid to alleviate and remove some of those barriers? I mean, I think the the problem, the reason it happens is because those kinds of things, um, you know, there's there's no financial incentive, right? Those are things that cost money where 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 you're talking about cures, there's people that that make money. I don't mm-hmm. know what the solution is. I don't know how to convince people to change on that. Um, but it's it's obviously really important to do. I think, you know, obviously part of it is, is to to get people to, um, to, to to help make that an election issue when it comes to, to voting and raise awareness that way. Um, but obviously there's there's so many things that people are are competing with in election time. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's something that you must think about as a parent, uh, as Bryson's dad and as da- Bryson's parents, because even if some kind of a cure were to miraculously appear, it's not likely that 
um, it will be a complete and absolute solution. So I suspect these are issues that will continue to be something that you'll think about in uh, the years to come. Uh, you know, we've been talking a lot about your po podcast throughout the episode, and it just occurred to me, I never actually asked you to, to tell us about how the podcast came about and what sort of discussions you had with your family, because it's not just your podcast, but your wife is featured very prominently. Your son, Connor, is really insightful. What kind of conversations happened around your dinner table to decide to do this? Well, so so it started when we first heard that um, th there was a researcher at the University of Toronto who had done this test basically where she was able to do a treatment in adult mice that had grin disorder. And even if they were adults, she was able to um, make a change in, in the mouse's brain basically that um, reversed most of the symptoms and made the brain closer to being uh, a neurotypical mouse. And so that, you know, kind of gave us a lot of hope that it wasn't too late for Bryson to, to have some kind of treatments or cures that could make a big difference in his life. And so I really started to look into it. And you know, I think just because of my background as a journalist, I just thought this would be an interesting story to tell as a podcast, as I, as I went through with this. So, um, you know, certainly wanted to make sure that Laura and Connor were comfortable with, with everything that was in it. So they, they got a chance to look over the scripts and, and to, uh, listen to their own tape before anything went in and, and, you know, didn't make a lot of changes, but, but suggested <laughs> a couple changes. So, um, you know, I think they were, they were really, um, they were really happy with with doing it, happy with how it turned out. I wish, you know, I, I wish I could have had those same conversations with Bryson and made sure that he was able to kind of consent to us doing all of this. And mm -hmm. he's just not able to. And so I had to kind of make a decision as his parent and, and mm -hmm. along with Laura that, you know, yes, this is this is okay to do, even though it's kind of making his story public and, and giving away some of his privacy. Um, if going through this project can help him and help other families, then it's a, a journey worth taking. Where can we listen to your podcast? So it's available anywhere that podcasts are found. So Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Podcasts, Spotify, um, and other podcasting apps. Thanks a lot, Keith MacArthur. It was such a pleasure to speak to you. It's fair to say the time just flew by. Yes, thank you so much. It was great. That was Keith MacArthur, CEO of the Cure Grin Foundation and host of the CBC podcast, Unlocking Bryson's Brain. You can find that podcast as well as our podcast for The Pulse wherever you get your podcasts. Um, you know, we've got a few minutes to wrap up here, so I'll just say briefly, I think the most important takeaway from this conversation is that there is no straightforward answer to whether or not we ought to seek a cure for disability. So it's one of those questions that I think Keith will puzzle out and I will puzzle out and other people with disabilities will wrestle with in our lives. But there's always room for collaboration and building bridges between people with disabilities, parents, researchers, and other concerned stakeholders. For more from me, head on over to the show blog page, ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I'd like to thank Keith MacArthur for being on the program today. The technical producer for the pulse is Nisreen Abdul-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager of AMI Audio. And Paula Deneen is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening. I would love to get your feedback on this and other programs. Wherever you are and whatever you're doing, be safe and have a wonderful rest of your day.
This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hello, I'm Sean Priest. Join me monthly for Sean of the Shed, where I introduce you to all the technology that can be so useful to us as blind or partially sighted people. Find Sean of the Shed wherever you find all your podcasts.